Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable energy, oh, and living, <laughs> and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. I'm Annie Warmke. <laughs> and today we've got another installment of Dead White Scientist series, kind of sort of an installment, but today we're going to talk about the early homes of America or they weren't all born in log cabins. So, wow. And, I didn't know they were. Well, you know, I think we have this myth of America, you know. America. Um, America. <laughs> and, and, of course, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. And then the next thing that happened was the pilgrims showed up and they had Thanksgiving. And then we all moved into log cabins and George Washington Became made, president. Made the world safe for democracy. And, yeah. and that is America. And, oh, along the way, there were a few cowboys who, um, you know, robbed banks and shot Indians. You know, if I had studied your version, I would have given up on education. <laughs> well, that, okay, we've just Boring. explained the state of education in the United States. Anyway, so, but like, like most things that we learn in school, um, this is pretty much wrong. Um, wrong or not true? Uh, both. And oh, okay. some of it is, is intentionally wrong. And some of it is just, you know, when you when you make things generalized, you tend to get rid of the nuance and the color of, I mean, because people actually live real lives. They're not yeah. parodies or picture books that are, are well adapted for children's stories. But I was thinking about when I read the um, diary of Abigail Adams, and what I got from that was there was this huge marketing piece that was going on about... Uh, the British especially marketing us as, you know, we're hicks with coonskin caps and uh, we don't really speak proper English and we fight and get drunk. And I was thinking, well, didn't we inherited that from the British. But <laughs> So far it all sounds pretty accurate. I know, but it's just this whole, it was a marketing piece to get people here or to keep people away. Yeah. Well, when you think about marketing, I mean, the pilgrims are kind of the the quintessential marketing of these these noble religious refugees who found, you know, Plymouth Rock and came out and then befriended the local savages who taught them how to get through, uh, you know, when we had Thanksgiving and and all of that. And and it's interesting to note, you know, you might not have ever thought about it, but how did they communicate with the Indians when they first showed up? You know, this is a trivia question for a game, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's good <laughs> trivia. Well, really what happened and is is one of the first people they were introduced to is a fellow um, who they nicknamed Squanto because they couldn't really pronounce his name. But Squanto is the one who taught them about how you would use fish, you know, to fertilize corn and to grow corn and, and things of this nature. But before they met Squanto, what they did is they, they essentially scared away the locals they chased them down. They found where they had stored their winter food, and basically the pilgrims stole it from from the Native Americans. Well, weren't they spying on them to figure all that out? Well, no. They dug up the mounds. They took all their corn. Then, when they couldn't, when they ran out of that, they dug up their burial mounds and they stole anything that was of interest. And then they found their summer homes and they looted those. So, so our good um, pilgrim refugees were essentially. Um, Living out their Christian attitudes yeah, and there beliefs. You go. And Squanto, of course, uh -oh. had been stolen as a that. yeah. He had been <laughs> I'm glossing over it. Um, he had been kidnapped as a slave and sold to the monks in Spain. He had been to England. Uh, he had learned um, English. And and the story goes that 
when he was brought to the pilgrims when they were trying to communicate with Indians, basically one of the Indians like, wait a minute, I know a guy who knows this lingo, brought Squanto back. And the first thing Squanto asked was, do you guys have any beer? <laughs> you know, so In English. Yeah, because he spoke very fluent English, you know, <laughs> so he's like, hey, I, I want some beer. Haven't had haven't had a good point in a while, mate, you know? So this is the... That's interesting. He did have a British accent, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he did. Anyway, so so this is... But if you think about now, this is the frontier, right? Well, what is the thing about frontiers is you don't have a lot of the resources. So the early homes very much were similar to the Native American homes because that's what worked in the climates that these folks existed in. And although the British or the other European immigrants would have liked to emulate the homes that they were used to back in the mother country or the Vaterland, um, they just didn't have the materials. So you work with what you have. And one of the first homes that was um, popularly called was a, a newcomer wigwam, you know, which basically you would dig a hole in the ground about three or four feet deep and then cover it with um, sticks and um, build up the walls with some sod or or branches. Even covering it with hides and things too. Yeah, you could cover it with Whatever almost anything. Whatever you had, you'd use what was available. But then you're taking advantage of the thermal mass uh, that was, um, you know, inherent in the earth when you get below the frost line. It's going to have a certain comfortable temperature. So that's what the wigwams were doing. Um, and, and, you know, you do with what you want. But we have this vision that they immediately started hacking log cabins out of the, out of the wilderness, and, and that just simply wasn't so. First off, I mean, the British had no history of log cabins. Uh, log cabins was something that was really imported to America by the Swedes and, and the Finns. So it wasn't until... Much, much later, really the the late 1700s, that the British started seeing some of these and going, you know, hey, that's not such a terrible idea. If if all we've got is an axe and some logs, we can make a make a house that way. So there's, um, you know, you use what you have available, and and if you don't have a sawmill in your local community, uh, you can't really make boards to construct a a more traditional in quotes. No, but British they didn't home. even have like when when I was taking barns apart, I could tell I could almost tell the age of the building by the marks that were on the beams and the pearl of the building. It would show me whether they had hand hewn it, hand cut it, hand stripped it of its bark and and squared it up, or if there was a piece of machinery that had done that for them. So it's and even with a log cabin, I mean, they, they had to have similar-sized trees that sat on top of each other so that they laid properly so the chinking could go in place and close up all the gaps. And if you just logically think about the stories that we've been told, uh, which we're not taught to think logically lately or maybe not even when I was a kid to question those things, it makes sense that they really didn't build those kind of buildings at the beginning. Yeah, you'd have to have a super abundance of wood and a real lack of tools. Well, I think there was plenty of wood. I, well, I there don't was doubt and there that. wasn't. But weren't um, the pilgrims really sent here? They came for one reason, personal reason, which they said was to have religious freedom. But then they were sent here 
to get wood for the motherland. Yeah. In fact, uh, of course, one of the big motivations was uh, there was a lack of wood, um, not only for the brewing of beer, which was the major industry back in England, but also for the masts for the sailing ships. Yeah. I mean, you well, think the wooden the ships. Oceans, that's well, right. and they cut down all their good, good wood. So they needed a good source of wood. And it was interesting when I was looking at this because one of the things that financed uh, many of the early trips was uh, bringing back um, uh, sassafras. And I'm not sure if that was like for sassafras tea or the roots or whatever, or if it was the wood itself. I'm, I don't know. It was well, unclear. The tree, the tree itself would have produced a lot of project products. I mean, yes, for tea, uh, and I think probably other medicinal qualities for that tree, but it's a softer uh, wetter wood, it would hold moisture, so maybe it was used for things that needed to be more more wet. Um, and it grows quickly because it's what comes out of the forest land when you clear cut. That's one of the first trees that comes back. But there were other kinds of houses because I know uh, after that first sort of bit where they were trying to stay warm and everything, um, they they their next group that came along were the were the stone masons the stone cutters out of Ireland and Scotland and Wales um, and building houses out of stone. Well, there was a lot of uh, you know what you're getting into is sort of the second wave yeah. of housing because when you first arrive in in the new country or any new place, you basically want to get out of the rain. You know, let's put something up quick that will provide a shelter, maybe get us through this first winter. And then once we've settled in, you know, assuming we didn't all die of the plague or froze to death or whatever, get killed, which happened to a lot of them, um, you know, then we're going to build something a little more traditional. And if you have stone available and you have stone masons who know the skill, then that's what you're going to build out of. If you have uh, wattle and daub, you know, that was a very traditional British mechanism where you build a, tr a timber frame structure and then fill in between the supports with, with sticks and mud and horsehair and manure, manure. Mm -hmm. and all of that to, to sort of glue it all together and then earth plaster over it. And those are some techniques that we incorporate right now in some sustainable building practices. And then you build a thatched roof. Um, because that's another skill that you knew and is sustainable given the materials you have on hand. Um, those were structures that were early on where the British settled. You had maybe some of the Irish stonemasons or the Scottish stonemasons who built that way. The Swedes, you know, log cabins, that would have been some of theirs. But in the early days, they're mostly digging holes in the ground like the wigwam. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, um, in the in Philadelphia, there were the Quakers, and of course the Quakers. That was William Pitt's um, Pitt or Penn. Penn, William Penn, yeah, Pennsylvania. Um, anyway, he <laughs> um, they founded this with the Quakers. Well, they dug they out a, a, the a city village. of Philadelphia, oh, okay. yeah, and he uh -huh. started selling off lots, and they sold off the lots along the river, the Delaware River. And uh, there they would dig into the bank of the river, the river bank, um, and uh, make their homes essentially out of hollowed out caves. You'd dig into the side of the hill, have a south facing front, put a put a facade over it, 
and live quite comfortably in these homes. Uh, sounds a lot like a nurse ship, right? You're, you're, I don't know. I don't know this that comfortable. I think it'd be warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. But if it rained a lot, it would be well. You muddy get groundwater. You get muskrats coming in mold. through your. Yeah, you have I mean, a lot of visitors. Bugs. Everything is relative. You know, okay. it's better well, warmth, than warmth. I'd be going for warmth. It's so, better okay. than lying out on the street. No, and I'd be fine if bugs want to come visit because I want to be warm. So. Well, one of the problems that happened there is, of course. They were not very British, you know. You're living or in British a cave. British enough. <laughs> yeah. So William Penn was apparently ridiculed a bit when he went back to England about all of his colonists are living in caves. Ha ha ha! You must be whatever. And so he issued a proclamation. In fact, it was in uh, 1686. The proclamation conserving concerning the caves of Philadelphia, and he basically said, "I was tolerant with you people in the early days, but no more." You've got to vacate all the caves within two months, you know, because this is all about freedom. So do what I say, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, people kind of ignored him. So at that point, he sicked the police on him and started, you know, evicting and collapsing in the caves. And and so the tolerance. Nothing ever changes. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I was thinking about, too, is that, you know. If you if you realize that this is a way that you could live sort of comfortably compared to what the technology was available to you, that why they stayed, you know, the reason they stayed, and I guess because people are mostly sheep. And, why why they stayed like yeah, in why they Philadelphia? Stayed, yeah, and to have somebody tell you you can't live like that, that there's something wrong with you, and you know, I suppose God was involved in it too because they were Quakers, <laughs> but. Um, uh, I, I just it's just hard for me to look at that and say, why would you stay when there were so many other places you could go? I think we we have a different vision of America. I mean, it was like beyond here, there be dragons. I mean, if you go outside of the of the village walls, um, it's pretty dangerous. Yeah, but there by then there was New York. There was uh, what's the town in Long? Well, Philadelphia by by 1775 was the largest city in the country. Right. 40,000 people, which is still relatively small by our standards. But before I go into those, I wanted to remind you that you are listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding you once again that it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God. Thank God. So the end of the world as we know it began somewhere. And we're talking about some of the early homes of America and and maybe some of the myths. I mean, already we're finding out that our founding fathers were born in caves um, in Philadelphia. In fact, the very first um, European born in Pennsylvania, his name was John Key, and he was born 1682 in a cave in Pennsylvania. Wow. There you go. Well, the cavemen of but Pennsylvania. But I just want to say when I brought up the point that you could have gone somewhere else, that there was wilderness and some of these people by then had understood about farming because everybody had animals and raised chickens and had eggs and things. But they could have gone to New York. They could have gone to what's the place in Rhode Island? Um, Newport. Newport, Newport Rhode Island was actually Newport. the fifth largest town in the country. They could have gone to, uh, what's the southern one? Charleston. Charleston. They could have gone there. There was a lot of activity and probably I lots think, of jobs. I mean, a lot of people did leave. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, that's have. why we, that's how we settled this great continent, this yes. land from sea to shining sea. Um, and, and, you know, I think America is founded on people being annoyed 
by their neighbors. Yeah, and that's also know. our marketing shtick. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well, so, so I've got a story okay, tell about me a people story. who left because they couldn't stand what was going on. And so my ancestors, my great-great-grandparents were uh, illiterate farmers in, uh, in the South. And they, uh, I won't go into what they were doing, but they were they were uh, moonshiners. No, no, no. Right. They were sabotaging uh-huh. uh, efforts by uh, the rebel soldiers. Okay. And anyway, so so my great great grandmother, her name was Nancy uh, Vance Tipton. She decided that in order to keep from being killed, uh, when her husband went off to join up in northern Kentucky to join with the Yanks. Um, that she would take her three young children and a, what she called a great yellow dog and um, her mule, and they would cross uh, down through the Cumberland Gap and come up to northern Kentucky and wait for the war to be over because she didn't want to get hung. And uh, so she, once she th- went through the Cumberland Gap, she stayed in trapper shacks. Lots of people trapping furs and lots of money to be made doing that. And at one point, she was in a trapper shack. It was a log cabin, a simple little one-room log cabin with a stone fireplace. And she could hear something on the roof, and she could hear the rocks from the fireplace falling to the ground. And she got her rifle. She was a, a, a what you call that, a shot she she was a, she was good at shooting things. <laughs> a sharpshooter. A sharpshooter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, anyway, so they're waiting because they know something's going to happen, and the dog is barking like crazy and everything. And all of a sudden, yeah, a mountain lion comes right down through the chimney opening and spills out onto the floor, and the dog starts to attack, and she shoots and kills the mountain lion. Okay, so you're wondering why people didn't leave Philadelphia. <laughs> Because someone told them their house wasn't pretty, huh? Okay. Well, there were a lot of things. There were a lot of issues then. But the point is that people could leave and figured out how to leave. Well, and when you mentioned the fireplace, um, you know, firewood was quite a quite a thing. Um, in fact, the average colonial you mean a commodity. Quite yeah. A commodity. Well, it was a project. I mean, it took about forty cords of firewood to heat the typical home over the course of the year to heat it and provide cooking. Like a, just a little log cabin, you mean? Uh, just a colonial home. I mean, they just say on average, so I'm sure smaller and bigger. But a cord of wood, if you're not familiar, is a stack of wood four foot by four foot by eight foot. So that's a lot of firewood, 40 of those. Well, they're um, cooking and heating in an inefficient building. Right, and it was very, very inefficient. In fact, uh, Ethan Allen, the famous uh, you know patriot, um, he, Isn't uh, he the furniture guy? You no, know, he is now, but he was probably <laughs> burning furniture to keep warm. But the uh, it, there's a story that he was going to have a meeting uh, in his house and started getting everything heated up at noon. And by the evening meeting, he had gotten the house all the way up to 53 degrees, which uh, you would find quite miserable. I'm sure at the time it felt fairly roasty toasty. Well, they so also used th- to build fireplace where you could sit inside. Right. Uh, because you were cooking in it, it was really like a, its own room in a way, and it had a bench on the sides, well, and you some could sit would, in there to write and write do things because yeah. the ink would freeze in the house. Yeah. About ninety percent of the energy would go out the chimney, so you're burning the firewood, and almost all of the heat from it is going up, up and sucking it right up. So, yeah. so uh, actually, there was uh, Ben Franklin is famous for trying to uh, develop the Franklin fireplace to stove to fire a, stove. address this, and uh, then there was another. Fella, Count Rumford, who developed uh, a more 
practical fireplace, and it became quite popular. And you've seen them where the back of the fireplace is more narrow than the front, and it's pretty oh, shallow. Yeah. Well, that's how um, most of them are constructed. Well, that's because it, yeah, because it, it was a better way. Mm-hmm. It blew the heat out into the room instead of straight up the fireplace. And uh, so firewood was a, was a major motivation um, you know, throughout the year. And most of these homes had to have a 20-acre um, firewood uh, plot. Lot, a woodlot. A woodlot, yeah, because it would take a full acre of wood to heat for a year. And as you cycled through it, it took like 20 years before the first acre you chopped down had replenished itself. So, so it, was, uh, it was a big issue. And so the homes, so we get through that first thing of we're going to dig little things in the ground and we're going to dig into caves. You mean dig a hole. Make yeah, yeah, get through that, that first few years. Then we're going to go towards more traditional European housing, which didn't do a very good job here in America because the weather is a little rougher, a little... Um, well, it depends on where you are, but yes, in yeah. the Midwest, certainly, and the East. Sure, and even in the South, you've got heat and mosquitoes yeah. and things like yeah. that. Well, then, as we move forward, um, one of the big things that uh, changed our um, life here in, in colonial America, post-colonial America, is the, um, the Homestead Act. And this took place right in the middle of, uh, really, the Civil War in the 1800s. And what the Homestead Act said, it was in 1862 it passed, and the government said, we'll give you 160 acres of land. If you go out there and build yourself a home within three months, and that home's got to be at least eight by ten, so eight foot by ten foot. Um, so that then led to everybody go west, young man, you know, to uh, head out into the Great Plains. And one of the things you know about the Great Plains uh, today, as well as in years past, is there weren't that many trees. Well, but I just want to say that in the in some regions there are many counties uh, in the Appalachian Mountain area that were that fell into that, and they did come and they did build log cabins right away because they had to do it within those three months. But then they built stone. All right, you're back on houses. the stone. So, I like. I okay, like they were stone. all being stone. So, all right, <laughs> but but there would only be log cabins where there were trees. You get out into Nebraska. That's right. You get in, and you'd have to be maybe along a river or a creek. You'd find some trees, but for the most part, they built what they were referred to as sodies yeah. or sod houses, yeah. where they cut down in and they cut um, sod into strips that were about two foot by one foot by six so, inches. Sod being grass. Yeah, land. and it was prairie grass, so yeah. it was that. Really the thick. Buffalo grass, very yeah. thick and, mm-hmm. and weedy. So you'd stack that up to make your walls. Like little biscuits, I bet. Yeah, like bricks. Yeah. Really, like mm-hmm. two foot by one foot by six inch bricks. Yeah. And then leave places for the windows. It would be so miserable, though, because oh, it would it smell and it would get wet and it would mm-hmm. have bugs and Pioneering muddy. is not for the faint of heart. No, it is not. Right. And if there was, if they were lucky enough to have a little hill, They'd build a dugout where they would build it so into the hillside. Well, we know from building into hills, there's groundwater issues, yeah. things of that but nature. But it does create thermal mass. It helps yeah. you control the temperature amazingly well. And if that's all you have. And then later with the advent of uh, baling machines, they could build um, what were called Nebraska-style straw bale homes. And those are still some of them today. are still, you know, yeah, well, they're still building, but some of those houses still stand, two-story, beautiful 
houses. And again, you know, this was in a way biomimicry. They were imitating, humans were imitating animals, and it's really brilliant that they started doing that instead of just trying to do the same thing over and over again. And it's where we're going today, really, because if you think about it, how how humanity has progressed and is thought of as success is to do exactly what William Penn was making people do. He's knocking down all the stuff that was efficient and reusing materials. And they went to building with wood, which was not efficient, and it's still not efficient. We build with blocks. It's still not efficient. Um, and so we're moving towards the idea of using solar, uh, passive solar, so that we can capture the heat like you do in your car when you're in the parking lot and it's all shut up. And, it, and, and we're also using thermal mass like they did um, with digging into the into the walls. And that's where we're going to go. People aren't going to have a choice. Well, it seems to go in, in, in a circle. You know, everything old is new again. Uh-huh. When you're first in an environment where you do not have access to outside materials, you have to build sustainably because you're going to use local materials. You're going to be in a, a build in a way that is going to um, keep you warm in the wintertime, cool in the summertime. Otherwise, you're going to die. So, you know, we I'm sure people do it wrong. We just never read about those people because they're dead before they can write <laughs> stuff down. Or maybe they didn't know how to write yet. Yeah. And then, of course, we also see how government influence begins to influence how we build our homes. Because people are trying to do the right thing, for instance, the cave homes of Philadelphia. But then government steps in and says, no, 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 tut, tut, tut. That is not appropriate. That's not British enough. Makes That's us not look whatever. bad, yeah. Yeah, my friends are making fun of me, so therefore you must change your behaviors. Then we get government coming along saying, hey, we want you to populate the West, but you better build a house quickly. So now you're going to have to build these homes relatively quickly. What do you build them out of? Whatever you have around. You know, if all mm-hmm. you have is dirt, you're going to build a house out of dirt. Um, as the railroads started coming through, then people had access to building materials that were not native to that particular environment. So there, there began really a business, what they would call um, uh, claim shanties, where people would sell people the materials to build a tar paper house. Uh, it like cost a about kit. yeah, like fifteen bucks. Here's your house. You can put it up in a day. Well, then you've you've met the requirements of your claim. Yeah. Um, now they were crap, and and one little candle would set your house on fire, but or it uh, might blow it down. But you know what else was cool, is that they as you go west in your little trek you're talking about, then they hit upon people who built with adobe, mm-hmm. built with and made clay bricks and things like that, which we're also starting to do more of again because it produces a cooler environment where it's too hot. Right. We think of the Americas, you know, the colonial America as, you know, uh, you know, we get the pilgrims and then Daniel Boone and it's all eastern based. But really, the early settlement of, of America was out in the desert southwest. Yeah. So where's in fact, the, the oldest, oldest house? Yeah, where the oldest it? building in America still standing today is uh, the Taos Pueblo, um, which is out near Santa Fe. And it was built, began being built around the year 1000. So it's a thousand years old. It was wow. continuously inhabited, this little um, uh, series of buildings there, for about 400 years. That's cool. So most of the oldest homes in America are actually adobe buildings built in the southwestern United States. Everything old's new again. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you have been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our award-winning producer, Adam Rich, and we want to thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully probably told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and use thermal mass for your building. All right. With vegetables. Till next time. Mother <laughs> Earth will sing and her children will be You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com. Yeah!